Well, thanks, Zip. It is amazing to know that all around the world, uh, people are gathering and worshiping God and praying, and that we're part, really are part of a bigger family. They might not look like you. They might speak a different language than you. Uh, they may even have different uh, cultural customs in their church services than you do. But um, God is awesome. Amen? Amen. Well, hey, we've been in uh, Psalm chapter 91. We're going to wrap that up today uh, as we look at that. And uh, we've looked at a, at a few things as it relates to, uh, to Psalm 91. Uh, we've looked at uh, and discovered having the right mindset when we approach uh, troubles and uncertainty. We saw that in the first two verses of uh, Psalm 91. Uh, last week we looked at who are the beneficiaries of the promises in Psalm 91. You say, well, beneficiaries, that's a, that could be a big word for some. And basically, who, who gets those promises? Um, we looked at that last week, and you can, you can see both of those uh, sermons on YouTube or uh, uh, Facebook or any of those kinds of platforms. But today we're going to look in Psalm 91 and see what are the promises in Psalm 91, and then what is our response to that. And so uh, it's about time. I mean, we love Psalm 91 because of the promises in it. And uh, we've taken uh, three weeks to get here and talk about it. So uh, hopefully uh, you're excited as I am to look at the promises. But let's pause and, and, uh, and pray. Amen? Amen? Lord, we, uh, we, we pause for a minute here in the middle of our service. Because, Lord, we don't want it to be just our service. We want you to be here with us. And so, Lord, we invite you uh, right now, just to be part of what we do, Lord. We open our ears to hear what you have to say. We open our, our hearts to receive and our minds to understand. We just ask your Holy Spirit to do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do. And that's to speak to us, challenge us, and change us. In your precious name, amen. Amen. In Psalm chapter 91, uh, verses 3 through 6, we're going to read uh, through those together. I'm reading from the NIV translation, and it says this, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Now, we're going to look at these uh, verses. There's some more promises later, but these verses 3 through 6 and say, what in the world are they talking about? I mean, the fowler's snare. I mean, I, how, many, how many use a fowler's snare every day? Right? Like, what is a fowler's snare? And, and what does it mean that we're, uh, you know, we're, we'll, we'll be saved from the fowler's snare? So, essentially, a fowler's snare was a bird trap. And you're like, why would anybody want to trap a bird? Well, lots of different reasons to sell them, uh, but mostly to eat them because people eat birds, like you eat chicken, you know, you eat pheasant, those kinds of things. So uh, it was a trap built to ensnare a bird. And so when, when, um, when this, uh, the psalmist says, he will save you from the fowler's snare... How many know the fowler, uh, he creates the trap to ensnare and catch the bird? And he's not doing that so the bird can be a pet, right? Uh, the, it, the bird's destruction is quick once they're ensnared. And so when he says he will save you from the fowler's snare, he is saying he will save you from the trap against you, the trap that's set out for you to ensnare you and to destroy you. It's, a, uh, it's an analogy for, at that time, as I'm sure many of them uh, were hunter-gatherers and those kinds of things, that they would understand that, uh, oh, in this promise, I'm the bird. Right? In the promise, I'm the bird in this story. And he's saying, hey, if I'm the bird and there's something that's been created to intentionally ensnare me and destroy me, God's going to save me from that. 
And then he goes on, he says, and from the deadly pestilence. The deadly pestilence is, is simply this. It's a destroying plague. Uh, we, we understand what a destroying plague is, right? Sometimes that was actually uh, uh, physical, like a disease, and sometimes that was actually a destroying plague like in uh, the plagues in Egypt. It was like maybe a swarm of locusts or fire or those kinds of things. It was anything that came and took over and just destroyed uh, large segments. So his first promise shows this. He's going to save you from intentional planned destruction or non-intentional destruction. Uh, There wasn't a single person necessarily out there for you, but it was uh, a plague, uh, fire, locust, anything that was going to destroy you intentionally or unintentionally. And then we move on in verse 4. He kind of describes that as like, hey, he's going to save you by covering you with his feathers just like uh, a bird covers its youngs with its wings and its feathers. And he says his faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So I know the, the, the terminology he, he gives the illustration of a, of a bird that, that's covering over its young. And he says, hey, in your uh, instance, it's God's faithfulness that's going to be that shield for you. You say, well, God's faithfulness. Like you can trust in his faithfulness because God does not disappoint. He doesn't fail. And so the fact that you knowing that that he never fails, will be there for you. Let's move on in uh, verse 5. He says, You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. What is the terror of night? Well, night is uh, is synonymous with a few things in Scripture. It can be vulnerability because when you're at night, you're vulnerable, right? You could be, uh, I've... You know, if you've walked the streets uh, of any major city at night, you're a little bit more vulnerable than in broad daylight, right? This is vulnerability. It also means the unknown. You can't see, you don't know. Uh, where you, you, It's just unknown. It's darkness. And so there's the terror, uh, uh, the fear. You will not fear the terror of night. He's, what he's saying is you will not have a debilitating fear of the unknown, and I don't know about you, but there are times when we walk through life when, when we don't know what's around the corner, where we're v- super vulnerable. And when you put those two together, when you're vulnerable and you're unsure of what's, what's around the corner or what's around you, how many know that anxiety can take over? And anxiety can be a debilitating. What does debilitating mean? It can freeze you. You don't know how to act. You don't know what to do next. You're just, it's terror. That's the definition of terror. It's just, I'm just going to stay here. It's like a deer caught in the headlights. And I'm sure more than one of us have experienced that kind of fear or terror in our lives. So he's talking about the fear. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor will you fear the arrow that flies by day. Say, well, arrow flies by day. What in the... What in the world is that? Well, at the time that this was written, the arrow was the most deadliest part of combat. It was the technology of the day. So it signified like, hey, the, the, the arrow that flies by day was, was basically uh, in the middle of the day invasion. The, the fear that comes with just being overtaken and overpowered by an enemy. The arrow that flies by day. We, it wasn't talking about hunting. Uh, it wasn't talking about, like, you know, you're not going to feel, if you're, you know, a sporting event or any of those kinds of things. The arrow was like, hey, it would be like saying today, you're like, you will not fear the tanks that come by day. You'll not fear the nuclear bombs that, that may fall during the day. Like, that was the terminology of that time. So, an invasion of an enemy, which was very real then because kings went off to war. They conquered lands and it became their territory. Then they got conquered. It was just normal world society at that time. So you would fear, Jesus, that the the king across the river become more powerful over the winter. And will he come with his army, invade us, and destroy us? 
Those are very real fears. And we have very real enemies as well, don't we? Right? We have people intent on destroying us. And, and, and we might not be as aware of it as those periods of time, but uh, there are people who are definitely out for their, their gain at your expense. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Again, he's bringing in the whole pestilence piece, this, the, the plague thought, the, the destruction when you are vulnerable. I mean, isn't that why we hate the feeling of vulnerability? So it's okay to be vulnerable around people that you love. Because you know they love you. They're not going to destroy you. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to harm you. It's okay if you let your guard down and you show you weakness because they're not going to take advantage of you when you're vulnerable. But when we're vulnerable and it's unknown and we're around enemies or around people who, who are out for their own gain at your expense or any of those kinds of things, it can be, it can be uh, fearful nor the plague that destroys at midday. And I think that speaks for itself just in the, uh, the, the attack that comes when you're wide awake and you see it coming and you know it's coming and there's, it's not hidden. Uh, it's, uh, whether you're vulnerable or not vulnerable, it's just uh, a, a destroying plague or pestilence. The psalmist speaks to these things. Uh, and he's speaking to these things that it's protection from destruction. And that destruction might be from man or disease. That destruction might be from known or unknown sources. It might be from seen or unseen. And how many know there's a difference? There's a difference between knowing something and seeing something. Right? There's a known and an unknown, a seen and an unseen. There's, there's a destruction that can come from, from a person, man or female, or just disease or plague or natural disaster. Don't we face these things? I mean, we don't like to face them. But throughout your life, I'm sure every single one of you has been at some place in your life where you have faced something that's trying to destroy you. Physically, medically, Spiritually, financially. Well, in Psalm 91, verses 10 through 13, this promise is made. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I mean, that's an amazing promise from God. He says, basically, all of these things that we've listed, plagues and, and uh, destruction and unknown and unforeseen and terror and anxiety and all of these pieces that God will command his angels to lift you up, to guard you, so no harm will come to you. You will not be destroyed. Nobody's excited about that, huh? He goes on in verse 13 and he says, You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, in the end, my promise to you is you will be the victor. In the end, you will be victorious. In the end, the, the, the lion's not going to devour you. The the, the cobra's not, the, the snake's gonna bite, not going to bite you, deceive you, pull you away, any of those kinds of things. Both of these, and we don't have really a whole lot of time to unpack it all, but the, the symbol of the lion in the Old Testament and the symbol of the serpent, there's a lot that, that's there, right? We know the serpent from the, uh, from the Garden of Eden, right? The, the, the prophetic uh, 
uh, God said, hey, uh, in the end, like, the, you will crush his head, but he will bruise your heel, right? There's all of this symbolism of these things, but the, at, at its basic, what we can gather from this today is that you will be the victor. That is God's promise to you in the end. In the end, you win. Not the destruction, not the devil, not evil, not the person trying to oppress you, not the plague. In the end, you will be victorious over it. Which is, now you can see why uh, a lot of soldiers use this as the soldier psalm. Right? Someone who believes in God and is close to God carries this and says, as a promise, Lord, you've given me this promise. Let's keep going on in verse 14. We read this the other day. It says, because he loves me, here's the reasoning. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. There's a promise here to rescue and to protect to answer, to be with, to deliver the promise of long life and salvation. When we look at all of these things that the psalmist is writing about, the promises of God, it really can be summed up that all of these promises are protection from being destroyed by a manifestation of evil. You see, plagues aren't from God. It's a manifestation of evil. Oppression isn't from God. It's a manifestation of evil. Someone seeking to devour you or crush you or destroy you is not from God. It's a manifestation of evil. All of the things listed in Psalm 91 are are manifestations or actions as a result of evil. They don't have their origin in God. And so he's promising, he's making this declaration, this promise that, that for those who meet this criteria, those who we talked about last week, who the beneficiaries are, that I will protect them so that evil will not destroy them. That's the promise in its various forms. How I many know evil has a lot of different forms? Right? We're quiet this morning. <laughs> we, we established a few weeks ago that God is capable because he's omnipotent. Right? He's almighty. There's nothing more powerful than him. There's nothing stronger. There's nothing uh, that can overpower, surprise God, wear him down. There's nothing. And so he's capable of delivering us and protecting us. Because if he is the most powerful, there's nothing that can overpower him and say, ah, broke down your wall, built a rampart, dropped a nuclear bomb, Whatever, God is more powerful than it all. So there's, there's nothing. So it's this God who's making this promise to you and to me. We believe, that, we believe that God is going to protect us. One, because we're aware of his uh, omnipotence, which is his, he's all-powerful, he's almighty. But then we learned last week, because we recognize him as the most high almighty God, And because we have chosen to make him our home, right? We've chosen to move in with God. And because we love, admire, and enjoy all that God is, we believe that he will shelter and protect us from evil. Right? Well, two of you do. Do you believe that God will protect you from evil? 
And I know where the hesitation's coming from. We're going to talk about it in a minute. There's a, yeah, I, I believe it, but, but. We believe that he will shelter to protect and save us from evil. So our response should be like that of King Jehoshaphat. And let me explain. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, um, King Jehoshaphat was one of the kings of, of Judah. And he is met with some news that there's a vast army marching to destroy him. And he's terrified. He calls the whole city into, hey, we need to fast, we need to pray, we need, uh, we need, we need to do something. I just don't know what to do. Because kings can obviously know the army that's coming to attack us is way more powerful than I am, and we really don't have a chance. I might be able to, we might be able to hold them off for a week or two, you know, buy us some time. In the end, way more powerful. Right? It's like, you know, me trying to arm wrestle a weightlifter. Like, I, it's not, not going to win. I'll, I'll give it my best go, but in the end, I know what's coming. Right? And so that's the condition that Jehoshaphat finds himself in. And so he invites uh, uh, the, the country to come to Jerusalem and to fast and to pray. And at the end, in Second Chronicles chapter 20, in the last half of verse 12, this is the end of his prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That, that is our response in trouble, in uncertainty, when we place our trust in an almighty God. When we say, hey, God, evil is at my doorstep. I am going through it. And I don't have any idea how to get out of this. I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do. But, because you are my God, and because uh, I have chosen to make my home with you, and I admire you, and I love you, and I know that you're all powerful, and you are capable of this, I'm just keeping my eyes on you. And uh, you're in control. That is our response. Notice Jehoshaphat, God does not give Jehoshaphat uh, an answer. You, you keep reading uh, through Second Chronicles chapter 20 and say, Oh, Jehoshaphat, because you've prayed this prayer, this is what I will do. It doesn't happen. And if you keep reading, what Jehoshaphat does is he says, Hey, I'm going to act on my prayer. I just prayed, hey, God, my, our eyes are on you. So what does Jehoshaphat do? He consults the people, and they get the band together, and they put the singers in front of the army as they march out. You guys know that that's a little loco. That's like crazy. This vast army is attacking you, and you send, you know, the musicians and the artsy people out in front of the... And I don't... Like, that just doesn't make sense. Say, like, hey, Pastor Sean and Jim and Malcolm and, you know, you guys are going in the battle first with your guitars. Like, right? Like, wow, thanks, you know. And they're instructed with just to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's it. Now, this wasn't God didn't tell them, like they did with Jericho, hey, march around and do this. The people just decided, you know what, our eyes are on God, and we need to keep our eyes on God, so we're, gonna, we're just going to sing praises to God as we go off to battle and probably die. That's what they did. And unbeknownst to them, as soon as they started worshiping God on the other side of the mountain, where they were headed, God threw the armies in the confusion, and they started fighting each other and killing each other. And so by the time the Israelites got around the mountain pass and looked down, everybody was dead already. God protected them. He saved them. As a result, not only were they saved, they got to plunder the enemy. 
You know what plunder means? They disappeared and they got, you know, they were dead, so they took all their stuff. That's what, they plundered them. They checked their pockets, you know, they took their gold, they took their weapons, they took their machinery, they took their horses, they, they just plundered them. It took them four days going back and forth to the city with the plunder to get it all. That's a lot of plunder, don't you think? So not only did God save them, he caused them to increase in their possessions and their wealth in the process. And the result was a simple this. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God came through. I mean, Psalm 91 brings us great hope. And those stories of examples bring us great hope. Like, God, I, I know I live near you. I, I've made you my dwelling. I love you. I serve you. And I believe in you. And you bring me hope because I know that you're all-powerful. But there's also a tension here, which I know you know it as well. And probably you feel it as well as even while we're talking about this. And Habakkuk reveals this tension for us very, very well. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says this. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Because of this, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I mean, Habakkuk just had it. Right? Like, geez, Lord, isn't justice all around? The law fails. Everything's, you know, uh, as an old time saying, going to hell in a handbasket. How long is this going to go on? Right? There's all kinds of trouble. There's all kinds of calamity and uncertainty and all this. And I am sure Habakkuk was very well aware of the promises of Psalm 91. Which is probably why he was lamenting. Really, God? Come on. How long are you going to allow this to continue? How long are you going to let evil reign? You promised that you would rescue us. I don't see any rescuing happening, God. And don't you feel this same tension as well? You know the promises, but when you're in the thick of it, you're like, God, how long are you going to make me go through this? How long before you rescue me? Do you just not care anymore, God? Right? We all feel those things inside. I know you've said these promises. I know that you're all-powerful, and I know that you love me. So those two things together ought to equal deliverance. Right? Well, there are many others, if you read through the Bible, who cry out with these same laments with God. This, uh, the whole book of Job is dedicated to this lamenting. Moses cried out to God uh, on the people's behalf. The prophet Jeremiah did, and, and many others, as you read through scriptures. It wasn't just Habakkuk. It wasn't, it's not just you. And so uh, I am sure that you have asked God similar questions in your life. Uh, in the past, uh, currently, and I'm certain that in the future, you'll be asking God, how long, God? Around something. Around something. Right? The, the, I know your promises. I believe in you, but how long? Or maybe you've just experienced evil already, and you've wondered why God didn't just swoop in and save you. Like, God, you know the evil that I endured. The horrific things that were done to me, and, and you did nothing. You just let it happen. Why didn't you save me? That tension exists. So when we read Psalm 91, it gives us great encouragement, but then we go, yeah, but what about... How long, Lord, till we see this? Well... Like I said, we know and believe that God is all-powerful and we believe that he's loving. 
So those two things ought to equal those, you know, all-powerful plus loving ought to equal deliverance. But Habakkuk reminds us of another characteristic of God that we have to put in the equation, and that's in verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. What is Habakkuk saying? Habakkuk is saying that God is eternal. He's everlasting, which means he knows no time. God does not live in the confines of time like you and I do. He has no beginning. He has no end. God does not have a stopwatch up in heaven and saying, oh, Sunday morning, got to get down there. He lives outside of time. I know it's hard for us to understand, but he has no beginning. He has no end. He, he is always. So this is, this is important for us to understand when we're dealing with the topic of evil and injustice and these kinds of things in our life, and whether we're destroyed by them or not, destroyed by them, and that is this, that God has an eternal perspective, and we have a time perspective. Very important. Let me say it again. God has an eternal perspective, a forever perspective. You and I have a linear, a time perspective. Like, happened here, this here, ought to happen here, as we march down through this timeline. If, if this is us, all of this is God. He has an eternal perspective of this. And God fulfills his promises on his timeline, not ours. God fulfills his promises on his timeline, not ours. So the promise that evil will not destroy you can be seen here and now or on judgment day. God is still faithful to fulfill those promises. This is the part we don't like, which is often why we leave this piece out of the equation. Because we're people, we don't understand an eternal perspective. And so we say, hey, God is all-powerful, God is loving, ought to be deliverance now. But when, you, when we say God is all-loving, God is all-powerful, God is eternal, God will make good on his promises. I will not, at some point, be destroyed by evil. This isn't in my notes, but I, I, I think it's important to talk about um, we are um, God's an eternal being. He has no beginning. He has no end. Right? God created us, but the moment he breathed life into us, we became potentially eternal. So, when God, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believed in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So when we make God our home, and we, do, we choose to say, God, I'm going to live with you. Your ways are going to be my ways, your house, my house. I'm, I'm close with you. He, he grants us eternal life. So when we talk about being, uh, that's the promise and the fulfillment of not being destroyed by evil. So even if you experience evil in any of its various forms here on this earth, here in the, a certain decade or, or a certain half century or whatever, the, the promise, the guarantee that evil will not destroy you will be fulfilled on judgment day. When he says, guess what? You're not going to hell and being destroyed by evil. You're going into the place I prepared for you and live eternally 
free from all sources of evil with me forever. So we often think like, God, why am I experiencing evil on this earth? I can't answer the why for you. I don't know why God chooses to deliver some 30 seconds after they pray and some on on judgment day they never get reprieved. I, I don't, I'm not God. All I know is this, that, that when you make God your home, he grants you eternal life. You become an eternal being with him. And his promise to you is there will, be, there will be a point where evil will not destroy you and, and you will be free from it for an eternity at some point. Some of us walk through it, but actually all of us walk through it till that day in some way, shape, or form. Because at some point, we all have uh, some sort of breakdown in our physical body, right? Some sort of, uh, you know, sickness or, or disease or old age. I'm a first-hand witness. But at some point, and, and then remove that, the, just the opposition of people who, who have not been transformed by Jesus Christ, including us. Guess what? Sometimes I do evil things. I, I try not to. But I'm not any better than the Apostle Paul, who said, man, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. What is wrong with me? We all do evil sometimes, right? If you can't admit that sometimes you're evil, you probably have some self-righteousness that needs to be worked out. Seriously. I'm not joking. We're all, we, it all resides in us, and in the right circumstances will come out. So, thank God for his grace and his mercy. And I try not to live there, and I try to, when I, when I, when I see it, it's like, that's what the whole analogy of the silver and the dross and the heat causes the, man, when I'm, when I'm put to the fire, the worst of me comes out. And I hate it. Because then I'm confronted with, man, that's what's really in my heart. I don't, I don't want everyone else to see it, Right? Just like you don't want everyone else to see your uh, dirty laundry or, or stuff that comes out when you're under heat. But God in his grace shows that to you so you can say, Lord, will you help me with that? Can I move beyond this? Because this isn't reflecting you. Whoa, I'm way off my notes. Okay. It is right for us to trust in God and to ask God for deliverance from evil in the here and now because he hears our prayers. And to hold on to his promise that, that, God, you promised deliverance. You promised freedom from evil, and I'm asking you. And it's right for us to believe that he would do it here and now and not just on Judgment Day. But what is our response if his answer is an instant or in the time frame we think it should be? What should our response be? And Habakkuk gives us this in the very end of Habakkuk in chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. He says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Let me pause here, because we are not an agricultural, we are not an agricultural community. Right? So you could read this and you could say, what if stop and shops shelves are empty? What if there is no money in my bank account and there's no gas in my car and the debt collectors are bearing down on me and I have nothing to show for? I've sold all my stuff and I still don't have any food. That's the equivalent of what's being said here because 
uh, people grew their food and then they stored it to survive drought or, or the, the growing season because, like, if you've had a little garden, you know it takes time for plants to grow and fruit to mature, and then you can pick it, and that food sustains you while you're planting more and waiting for that. So he's saying, hey, if, if my crops have no food on them, that means my future is bleak because I have nothing to help me get through to the next season. And he's saying, if I have uh, no sheep in the pen, which was the bank account, and I have no cattle in the stalls, the cattle were like they worked for you. That's like the ox. I plow my fields with those. I, that's like my car got repossessed. If I have nothing, if it's all gone, Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. You see, he's saying, hey, I don't see it. I've lost everything. This isn't right. I'm asking God for deliverance. But in the meantime, I'm going to rejoice that I'm close to the Lord. I'm going to be joyful that in God my Savior. God hasn't saved him yet. I want to be joyful in God my Savior. You're saying, God is my Savior. I haven't been saved yet. I'm in the midst of it. I got nothing. But I know that God is good on his promises. He will save me. And in the meantime, verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And then it's for the director of music on my stringed instrument. That's nice. You know, somebody played it on a guitar. It was a song. <clears throat> but he says, in the meantime, the Lord will strengthen me to get through this. He might not save me right away. I might be looking very bleak. But until God delivers me, he will strengthen me. I will get through this. That's our response when we're waiting on the promises of God. We have confidence because we know God is able to deliver. We know that because we've made God our dwelling, he loves us. We're close to him. I got confidence that God's going to come through. But when he doesn't come through on my time frame, my response is to say, hey, I know that God's going to help me. He's going to enable me to get through this. He's going to strengthen me. So I'm going to still rejoice. I'm still going to be uh, look to him for my salvation. One of our favorite psalms, the psalmist says this too. Psalm chapter 23. I bet you some of, them, some of you could even quote it. Verse 4, he says this, even though I walk through the darkest valley, or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How can the psalmist say this if he's walking through the darkest valley? I'm the worst part of my, he says, I'm in the worst part of my life. I'm going through. It's the darkest valley. It's not just like, hey, the sun's setting a little bit. I can barely see. No, this is the darkest valley I've ever been in. Even though I walk through that valley, you say, well, why doesn't God just rescue you from that valley? I don't know. I don't know. He says, I'm not going to fear because God is with me. And so as we're looking at Psalm 91 and his promises, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here. He says, even though I have to face evil, we have to face evil. Even though we're going to encounter it in its various manifestations, God's promise is that it will not destroy you. It will not overwhelm you. It will not overcome you. You will not be lost to evil. It may have its day. It may make your life really miserable. Right? But it's not going to win. It's not going to win. 
Because when you choose God and you choose to move in with God and have him close to you and love him and receive his love, you become an eternal being. And so even if evil has its heyday with you right now, next few decades, or the rest of your life on earth on your timeline, he destroys evil. And you live for an eternity free from it in a place where there's no evil for one. Uh, I think heaven's going to be beyond any of our imaginations. Like, I know there's songs about it and people dream about what heaven's going to be like with golf courses and mansions, but that's... Like, first of all, I don't like mansions, I don't like golf courses, so... To me, that's like earth. You know, I don't know why I would want to go there. I'm already there. But it's going to be way beyond what we can even dream. So if you're walking through evil and God has not delivered you, whether that be uh, somebody's intentionally trying to destroy you, whether that be uh, a physical ailment, uh, a plague, uh, a disease, uh, any of its various forms, know that he is with you and will strengthen you as you wait for his promise to be fulfilled. Don't run from him in, that, in these moments. You run to him. You run to him. So many people did it. We, sh- we need to adopt the posture of the people who in scripture, like the psalmist who just wrote about this, like Moses, who constantly went back to God into the tent, like Jehoshaphat, who said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Like Habakkuk, like Paul and Silas in prison, beaten, thrown into prison, and they sing joyful songs to the Lord. And you're like, how could they sing happy songs? Well, they weren't happy about their condition. They weren't happy, like, yay, we just got beat, we're in prison, we might die tomorrow. Like, yay, let's sing about it. Like, they weren't masochists. They said, no, no, we're we're celebrating our God. My God who's able to deliver me. And guess what? Even if he chooses to not deliver me from this jail cell and they hang me tomorrow, I'm delivered from evil. I'll be with him forever. So either way, I win. We need to adopt that posture as we wait for the promise of God. Last slide. Let's make a commitment that we'll wait on God's promise as well. And while waiting, that we'll make God our home, meaning we'll dwell with him. Verse 1 of Psalm 91, those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High, who make our home with him, that we'll, while we're waiting, we will love God by admiring and enjoying all that he is. That's what it means to really love God. All the things that you do for God come from an overflow of that. And that we will walk in his strength through the toughest things. This is what it means to wait on the promises of God. And you know what? If you receive the promise from deliverance, encourage, encourage us with it. Hey, God delivered me. Like, it's a reminder that, man, God is awesome. He will. My time will come. So let's commit. Let's, in our own heart and our mind, say this is how I'm going to wait on God's promise to overcome evil in my life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises in Psalm 91. We thank you that there's such a source of hope to us when we're facing just difficult and uncertain things. But Lord, we recognize also that in that period of hope, there's also this tension because sometimes we walk through these difficult things. We face evil and it seems like, like Habakkuk said, how long, where are you? So Lord, help us to have an eternal perspective and not a time perspective that you're not slow in, in keeping your promises, that, that you're not, uh, not going to fail us, uh, that you are trustworthy, that you are true. And so, Lord, while we wait for your promises, 
We, we make you our home. We run to you instead of from you. And as we run to you instead of from you, you give us strength to walk through and face the evil that we face in our lives. And then, Lord, help us to love you by enjoying you and admiring you and staying close to you. Lord, it truly is our desire to to be with you, to follow you. And so, Lord, we ask for your protection in the sense of just our spirituality and our mind that when trouble and evil faces us, it doesn't attack our, our trust in you. Help us as Jehoshaphat did, like, hey, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. May that be our mantra as we walk through this life until your promise is fully realized to where we will experience no evil any longer. Lord, I thank you for our church. I thank you for the folks that are in this room as well as uh, virtual who are watching. And I just, I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit's presence to be in our life, reminding us of your promises and filling us with your strength and giving us patience and long-suffering as we wait, Lord, on you. Help us, Lord, to deal with evil the way that you would deal with it, not in our own strength, but in your strength. We thank you. We love you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Church, good to see you today. Good to see you online. We'll see you next week. Uh, If you're with us live um, near your seat, there's a little snack bag with a wipe in it. Would you please take that out and wipe the hard surfaces in your area? That really helps us cut down on the cleaning um, aspect and uh, sterilization. Um, Remember, send a note to the